2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. We're bringing it closer to home for this episode. Oh, dear. Closer to our home right here in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Um... It's not too often, you know, lately that we do a, a, a local Connecticut story. And uh, I, you know, I've been wanting to talk about this one for a little while, but there's no, like, book about it or anything. So. Really? Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, still plenty of local uh, newspaper articles. There's, you know, court documents. Mm. Um, so I did some old fashioned gumshoeing. <laughs> and by that, I mean Googling uh, for this episode.
0: Well, aren't you a Nancy Drew?
2: On the Stamford Bra Murders.
0: Oh, I've never even heard of that.
2: Uh, yeah, this was a series of five unsolved murders between 1967 and 71, sort of at the beginning of the, you might say, golden era of serial killers. <laughs> um, these were all committed by one person, one man, we can presume. Um, All five of the victims were young black women. Uh, All of them were strangled and dumped along a less than one kilometer stretch of the Merritt Parkway.
1: Ooh,
0: where on the Merritt?
2: Right near the Riverbank-Roxbury Road overpass in uh, Stamford. So near like exit 34,
0: 33. Oh, We just passed that this weekend.
2: Uh, Yes, we did. Wow. And now you'll think of it, unfortunately, every time you drive by.
0: I will. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. So most of these victims were strangled with their own brasiers, hence the name that's been given to the crime, Mm. the bra murders. Uh, Not all of them were strangled with their bras, and uh, we'll have more on that later, of course. Um,
0: that's not necessarily an uncommon thing, the, the strangling with undergarments. Didn't the Boston Strangler or someone of that ilk um, strangle people with their own pantyhose?
2: Uh, the Strangler, the Boston Strangler uh, did, yeah, yeah, for sure. Hmm. And um, that's a, that'll be an episode of this show sometime. You gotta, gotta dedicate a two-parter to that guy. Ugh. Or guys. Or guys. Most or all of the victims in the Stanford bra murders were sex workers. The reason I say most or all is because, uh, well, unfortunately, there's not a terrible amount of information available on these uh, women, especially the earlier crimes, because um, until there were four or five of them, the media wasn't covering, you know, the, these murders too carefully or heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, until there was a little bit more of a a public outcry, or at least not enough that articles have survived to this time, right? Um, So I don't, unfortunately, have a lot of information about these women's personal lives, Um, but contemporary newspapers and uh, even the court filings from the 80s version of this case, the 2.0, explicitly say that all of the victims were prostitutes. Mm Mm-hmm. But at least that's, you know, 80s. That's a, that's what they they call them. Uh, at least one article I found about the last victim's death says, quote, three of the four previous victims were known to be prostitutes. Um, so I'm not sure that we know all of these women were um, sex workers. I just don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. Not sure. that I'm passing judgment on them if they were. Right. Um. Anyhow. These crimes are notable. The reason I'd heard of them before is because they caused uh, quite an outcry at the time, as five unsolved connected murders will do. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they also caused a public examination, a very loud public examination of whether Connecticut's justice system was working for everyone, um, regardless of the color of the victims.
0: Yeah, there's a, a common phrase that, um, in serial killer and and uh, crime like the the serial killer and crime lexicon mm-hmm. uh, calling some victims the less dead and yes. that doesn't mean that we're calling them that it's just that the justice system again it it, it is biased towards some people you as as a, our listener might see a lot of young white women uh going missing in the news like that's a big thing or being murdered or whatever you don't see it as much for young women of color um trans people sex workers certainly and there is an absolute bias to tell certain stories that seem quote unquote more tragic uh but every every life is equally valuable so Unfortunately, it it does it does impact how the justice system works, especially if you're talking about sex workers of color. Those are women who people would say, um, "Oh, well, they knew what they were getting into. They know that they're in a, a dangerous business, and they still chose to do it anyway." You're not even, and they're you know these people are not thinking about what would make someone um, be a sex worker uh, if it if it is not just a personal choice but something out of necessity. Uh, And it it is sad how these cases, more often than not, do not get covered until it it is a whole string of people. And then it's almost too late.
2: Yeah. And uh, so often, obviously, serial killers target uh, sex workers or homeless people. Um, Well,
0: Especially the former when it's a sexual kind of crime because they're easy to get.
2: Um, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at when you've got a string of murders of sex workers, and unfortunately, uh, all too often, a justice system that isn't you know, working too hard uh, until the bodies have uh, really started to stack up. In this case, uh, not the first body, but the first victim in the bra murders was Rose Ellen Pazda, um, age 29, who was also known as Sissy Rush. Uh, That was her, I don't know, nickname or street name or what people called her.
0: I think it would be a street name. A lot of um, female, well, any sex worker, I assume, goes by another name uh, rather than their legal given one.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, she was sort of known on both sides of the state lines uh, here in New York as a sex worker, I think. Um, but she was reported missing from Stamford on August 4th of 1967. Uh, Rose's body or Sissy's body wouldn't be found for almost another year and a half. Oh. But it's likely she didn't live too much past uh, August the 4th. Mm-hmm. On May 2nd of the following year... uh,
0: Where was her body found, particularly?
2: Oh, it was... Well, it wasn't found yet, so I'm not going to tell. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, On May 2nd of 1968, Donna Roberts was reported missing. She was a 22-year-old woman from Stanford, and she was found the next day dead and strangled with her bra and dumped um, a few dozen yards off the road, uh... Again, sort of between exit 33 and 34 off the Merritt Parkway.
0: Now, was this in a wooded area or just on the grass?
2: Uh, No, just in the... I mean, it's all sort of wooded down that stretch of the highway. Right, but
0: you could go into the woods or not.
2: Um, No, I don't think any of these women was too far off the road.
0: And were they just bodies or were they, you know, wrapped in something?
2: Uh, In this case, Donna Roberts, I think, was just found dumped there and Mm -hmm. uh, strangled with her bra. Jeez. A few months later, on September 8th, Gloria Kahn, or Kahn, C-O-N-N or Mm -hmm. C-K-A-H-N, I've seen it both ways, she was the only victim not from Connecticut. Uh, She was actually from Mount Vernon, New York, and she was found dead on September 8th only 60 feet away from the site of Donna Roberts' body. Hmm. Khan had also been strangled with her bra.
0: This seems to me that that whoever is dumping these bodies is either hopping on at the exit before and doing it immediately or hopping right off.
2: Well, I think I know that Sissy Rush was from Stanford, and I think... That Donna Roberts was from Stanford.
0: No, I mean the murderer. Right. When they're disposing of the bodies, they're hopping on the merit to do so from the previous exit or they're hopping right off after. So that's like where they seem to be coming from every time.
2: Um, And also there were tire marks at the site. I guess sites, but they were basically they were right next to each other. So basically the site, Uh, there were tire marks that police found that suggested someone had backed their car in. Hmm. Which uh, so investigators speculated the body was probably in the person's trunk, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you back off the highway, unload the uh, you know body, and then pull out.
0: Had to have been very dark, and the Merritt is dark and uh, not too busy at certain times of night.
2: It is unlit even now. Um, to give people an idea who uh, don't live around here, the Merritt Parkway is a highway, but it's a two-lane um high le- highway without street lights
0: it's meant to be more scenic
2: yes than it your is. classic interstates it is it's uh on in most sections it is closely uh kind of banked by trees on both sides of the road in in some other sections uh kind of picturesque rock faces
0: mm-hmm. it's very it's a very pretty drive um in like the spring and especially the fall when all the trees are all different colors um and it's a the horrible traffic. drive
2: anytime you're coming up uh, from the New York area at the end of a weekend.
0: Yeah, the traffic sucks for sure. Um, but at least, at least it looks nice while you're you're stuck in a log jam. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's right. Except
0: if there's a corpse on the side of the road, of, of
2: course. Yeah, that's right. And we'll get some uh, Stanford residents complaining about their view a little later in this case.
0: Of course, classic, classic Connecticut.
2: In April of 1969, so this killer did go quiet for a while, Um, but in April of 1969, Stanford police got a call from a man identifying himself as Preacher James Miller, Mm -hmm. and and this preacher uh, said that he could tell them where to find Rose Ellen Pazda's body. Hmm. Uh, Sissy Rush, that is, the, the first woman who had gone missing. Okay. The preacher directed police to a spot that was, in fact, only about 750 yards up the Merritt Parkway from where Donna Roberts and Gloria Kahn were found.
1: Mm hmm.
2: And said on the phone that he got the information from an anonymous call that had been placed to him. So this preacher was a real guy. It wasn't just.
0: The killer doing a Zodiac killer kind of taunting thing.
2: I- impossible to be sure, because police never spoke to this person in person. It's just the one phone call.
0: But was there a real preacher, James Miller?
2: Hold on, I'm getting to it. Okay. <laughs> the preacher said on the phone that he had gotten the information from a call he had received anonymously, where a black man's voice said wow. that he wanted Sissy Rush to have a proper burial, and then gave, you know, the location.
0: Any any v- someone's voice is always going to be up to your interpretation yes, certainly. of what that sounds of course. like.
2: So Um but following the directions given to them on the phone, police did find the skeletal remains of Rose Ellen Pazda, aka Sissy Rush, once again in yeah, a wooded area just off the Merritt Parkway. Mm-hmm. And about then, police decided, well, oh, maybe we should try to talk to this preacher James person uh, in person. Right?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
2: But they hadn't gotten a number or like an address, I guess, from this from this person. Um, so they then compiled a list of every clergyman named Miller in the state. Mm-hmm. Had to have been a James in the mix. And I believe the James Miller had said he was preaching in Stamford. Um, they couldn't find a James Miller from Stanford, and they never were able to turn this guy up. He, he's, This name dr- drops out of the narrative entirely here. He's never mentioned again.
0: Great detective work, guys. Really diligent.
2: Well, what police did find, maybe they got distracted. They found a self-ordained minister living in Norwalk, whose name was Benjamin Miller. Uh, Norwalk, for listeners, is uh, just over the line from Stanford. Uh, Benjamin Miller was 42 years old in 1969. He's described as stocky and bald. And uh, he was living in Norwalk and was, at the time, a clerk at the Darien Post Office. Another town just over the line. What does self-ordained mean? Um, it means he, I don't, he wasn't recognized by any church that I can find, but he insisted that he was an ordained minister and spent, like I, I, I guess, most of his time preaching when he wasn't at his job at the post office where
0: on the corner
2: he would get like guest spots at local churches Hmm. and when no churches would have him he would just take up a spot on a street corner and be like that crazy you know the crazy guy you see i had a feeling wearing a sign in the whole the whole shot um billy graham was his like hero oh boy and Ben Miller repeatedly got in trouble at work at the post office for trying to re- distribute religious pamphlets that he had written uh, through the mail. <laughs>
0: Probably looks like the back of a Dr. Bronner's bottle. <laughs> yes.
2: Oh, very much. Yeah. It, it's, it's big Dr. Bronner's energy. The all-in-one. Horrifying. Horrifying. Good uh, soap. Weird label. Now, because he was a bit of an outcast among his um, own kind of, na- in his own neighborhood and in his own, in the churches he tried to go to first, uh, B- uh, Miller spent a lot of time in black churches and on street corners in black neighborhoods in Norwalk and in Stamford. and um, But one of his usual haunts was kind of in the same neighborhood that most of these victims were snatched up from, not far away from where that overpass is.
0: Well, the thing that makes me suspicious from the jump is that who if he said someone called him, like who would know to call him and how would they know where to call him if he's just a guest speaker?
2: Well, I don't think Benjamin Miller is the James. I I don't think he's the James Miller.
0: This is just another unrelated guy.
2: I think this is an unrelated guy. It's just that that's how he came to police's attention.
0: So they didn't think that this was the caller.
2: They... No, they they didn't think this was the caller. But it's like, well, this guy's weird, too. They, they caught his eye because he was a weirdo and because he had clearly spent time in the victims' neighborhoods and in uh, their churches. And so police were, <laughs> police did seek an interview with Benjamin Miller.
0: Oh, I thought that they had figured that this guy might be the one. Nope. Okay nope they did not believe that um they saw yeah i mean if you if you round up everyone with the last name smith in the state you're gonna find a couple weirdos
2: so uh, they they saw an interview with him but um they couldn't make the scheduling work and they never followed up with miller diligent for, great for good the, for the time being and hey the murders had quieted down at this point anyway right
0: yeah who wants to solve the three murders anyway
2: well, on July 10th of 1971, Gail Thompson, just 19 years old, actually saw one account that said she was 17, but I, th- I believe Gail Thompson was 19 years old. Um, she was found strangled near Riverbank Road
1: mm-hmm.
2: in an abandoned house, I guess, which is a bit of a departure from the other uh, murders. Mm-hmm. Th- Thompson had been strangled with a handkerchief, which will become important later on. Was it hers? I don't know if it was hers. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in any of the, the papers that I read. I mean,
0: it's possible she wasn't wearing a bra.
2: Yes. Yes, you're right. Because, you know,
0: late 60s, early 70s, M- a lot of lib. people are go. it's like right now, a lot of people going free.
2: So she's burning, she's burning that bra, maybe, and he's just uh, grabbing the, the um,
0: whatever Rosie
2: I- the Riveter style handkerchief off her head. <laughs>
0: well maybe she had one
2: does rosie the riveter wear a handkerchief on her head
0: she has a as like a bandana yeah
2: okay <laughs> now the other murders had all had periods of like a couple of months uh, if these were all committed by the same person which i think they were um you do see with serial murderers uh, a lot of times an, a quickening up of the pace between the crimes mm-hmm. and it was less than a month and a half after Gail Thompson's murder that the last victim, Alma T. Henry, was found also on the side of the road in that same stretch of the Merritt Parkway that the um, three previous women had.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Alma Henry... And they,
0: they didn't think of maybe putting one guy out there watching?
2: Just watching that road for two years?
0: Well, just in between the the murders...
2: But it was like, yeah, it was like a two-year span.
0: Not between, not between every murder. It was only a couple months between every murder.
2: Right. So, oh yeah. So you're you're saying they should have gone like, well, he's gonna come back and dump. I mean, I don't know. It's a thought. But if the squad car's sitting there, maybe he doesn't pull in.
0: No, you put an undercover guy on the overpass.
2: And snap some photos.
0: I don't know anything. Something.
2: Well, they didn't do that. They had some. <laughs> And that's why it's unsolved. They had some moves, but that was not one of their move. Uh, No, Alma T. Henry was not found by police. She was found by two guys who were on their way to a Jets-Giants exhibition game in New Haven. By the way... They were just looking forward to a fun day. In New Haven? I don't know where you would play that game, but I, I want it to happen again. That's fun. Yeah. Um, anyway, two guys, they were driving to New Haven. I don't know if they, they said they had to switch drivers. Um, I don't know if they were really planning to pee on the side of the road or what was going on. Yeah, they probably hopped off to take a leak. But they hopped off to do whatever it was they hopped off to do. And they found a trash can lying on its side. And inside was stuffed Alma T. Henry, 34 years old, who had been strangled with her bra and then left inside the trash can about 70 feet off the road. Hmm. Uh, Alma's mouth and eyes were covered with tape. Her hands were bound behind her back, and uh, again, she was really just a few yards from where Pazda, Roberts, and Khan had all been found.
0: Okay, another question. Yes. This is the northbound side of the Merritt that she's found on. Um. Going towards Connecticut from New York. Yes. And they're all found on this side. Yes, they are. That's very interesting. Why? Because it, to me, it makes it more likely that this person could also be from New York.
2: Yeah, but why wouldn't they be headed home when they're getting on the highway to dump the body?
0: That's true. Well, then, yeah, okay, Interesting.
2: Um, I think it's likely this person did spend time in New York because two of the victims also spent time kind of around the state lines and back and forth. Mm -hmm. So I
0: don't I don't know the area well enough to know how many exits there are in the middle there and and what exits lead where. Don't ask me. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting that it's all on one side. It has to mean something for their travel habits.
2: Yeah. Now, unlike uh, the four previous victims who were all single women. Um, some of the newspapers said, like, all unmarried women Ugh. with kind of a tone. Um, the The four previous victims had been single women. Um, Henry lived with her husband and four kids in Southfield Village, uh, which is a Stanford housing project. Um, I bring that up because a lot of the papers brought it up because it was interesting because they were just like, well, she can't be a prostitute. She has children. So why would she have been murdered? Mm-hmm. Um Neighbors in the area didn't seem afraid for their lives, but more um, annoyed by the body dumps. Uh, One neighbor interviewed by the New York Times in 1971 said, I just hope the next body doesn't turn up on my stone fence or in the pool. It would scare the living daylights out of my children.
0: I, I hate this. I hate these people. No one's no one's dumping a body in your pool, Brenda. okay? It's clearly on the merit.
2: Brenda pays good money for the for the care on that pool. Brenda sucks, first of all. Brenda's not doing anything to solve. And this how callous
0: right. and heartless do you have to be?
2: That's why the the, the quote caught me, so I snipped it down because I knew it would piss you off.
0: We hate Brenda.
2: I'm not a fan of Brenda. That's not her name, by the way. The person who said that was quoted in the paper. I'm not sharing their name, okay. Uh, that was in the Times, yeah. Anyway, with the murderer apparently active again, and two murders in as many months, pressure mounted on police to get something done. The Stanford chapter of the NAACP held press conferences to ask whether the police would be doing more if the victims were white.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, new local groups formed, like the Concerned Citizens of Black Stanford, uh, which were basically just dedicated to the pros- the proposition of getting the police to do something about this.
0: Good. Someone has to get them to.
2: Well, and there's racial context here that it's easy for us to forget. I mean, we actually, we've been talking about sort of racial tensions and stuff in our country for the last couple of years. Right. Um, But this was, remember the late 60s, early 70s, um, Donna Roberts was murdered one month after Martin Luther King was killed. Yeah. And in the aftermath of that assassination, there were like racial clashes and um you know protests and riots and all kinds of um unrest sort of all over the country in stanford this is just an interesting detail from the advocate the stanford advocate here in stanford uh, the post martin luther king assassination protests included the raid of a poultry on west main street a where- poultry a poultry like full of chickens where the looters killed all of the white chickens and set all of the black and brown ones free.
0: Like a chicken coop? Yeah. Okay. Uh, misguided.
2: Just a it's a very unique form of protest I'd never seen before. I guess you didn't have to kill the poor chickens. I know. What did the white chickens do?
0: I mean, they're just chickens.
2: Anyway. All of this w- was, my point is, there was a, a, a growing feeling that a lot of the, you know, way that the U.S. worked wasn't built for everybody to enjoy equally, maybe?
0: Hmm. I'm glad that everything's different now.
2: Um, yeah, really. Um, yep, we solved all of these problems in the late 60s, which is why we don't talk about it anymore. So that's great. Mm-hmm. But in the early 70s, amid pressure to do something... Uh, police had formed a joint local and state police task force to solve this series of murders in Stamford, And that task force in late 1971 decided to look harder at our old friend Benjamin Miller. And we'll get into Preacher Miller, Reverend Miller, after the break.
0: This guy's weird.
2: when last we left you, I had laid out the facts in the case of the five unfortunate victims of the Stanford Bra Murders, as they've become known to uh, the annals of true crime history. Uh, Carrie, what do you uh, what, do, what what are your what's your read on this so far?
0: Well, so far, it's it's a very sad story. Um, sad we don't know more about the victims, though. Of course, you explained why that is. And it's very disappointing to see how law enforcement has responded so far, but not surprising. Um, and you, you mentioned that we were going to hear more about the fake Reverend Miller. And I find that story very interesting because it seems like they're using this guy as a suspect, even though they kind of stumbled across him by chance.
2: Uh, They'd certainly stumbled across him by chance, but he did have some connection to the victims or at least to the area where the victims had um, mostly been seen before they disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so maybe uh, there was something to look into here. And so invested. Plus, they'd never found that James Miller.
0: Yeah, but they didn't think this was him.
2: No, it's so weird. And honestly, if you were going to give like a false name, I... Just changing your first name and still being a reverend is a terrible idea.
0: Kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi going by Ben oh, Kenobi.
2: You, you mean old Ben?
0: Yeah. Kenobi. The Jedi.
2: No, it's that's just old Ben. He lives out on the Dune Sea.
0: Yeah, with his brown hooded robe Carrie, being a Jedi. He's
2: not a Jedi. Luke clearly says he's a crazy old wizard.
0: That's what a Jedi is. <laughs>
2: I have thoughts on Kenobi. Okay, we'll we'll keep going. Uh, maybe that's for Patreon. <laughs> um, as they investigated and looked a little bit more into this Benjamin Miller, investigators found that basically everyone they talked to about him reported weird behavior. Um, he was a loner, to say the least. He didn't seem to have... Um, any sort of friendly uh, social connections. Everything was just kind of uh, work, home, and then standing on street cor- corners and preaching. Um, he was also subject to bouts of depression and anxiety, although who among us isn't? <laughs> um, and he was a hypochondriac who had uh, trouble sleeping on a regular basis. These are all just kind of garden variety, low-grade mental illness things. Mm-hmm. Um There were some reports that in his street corner preaching, the Reverend would pay special attention to black women and girls and uh, also to uh, sex workers who he would call on to, you know, cast aside their evil ways.
0: So paying special attention, you mean just focusing on them? Yelling at
2: them specifically, yeah. Interesting. Not in a mean way, I don't think, but uh, he seems like he he put on a pretty harmless uh, face when he was doing this this whole preaching thing, but you know, just like a just like a weird guy yelling Christian stuff on a street corner. Mhm. Miller was interrogated by police with armed with this knowledge um, several times between 71 and 72. Um, in the interrogations, police said he displayed maybe some knowledge of the crimes that they hadn't made public. Mm -hmm. Um, specifically when investigators showed him a photo of Gail Thompson's body and asked, um, what do you think she may have been strangled with? The reverend guessed correctly a handkerchief, uh, which was interesting. The the newspaper reports and what had been kind of publicly stated was that all of these victims had been strangled with their bras. Mm -hmm. Um, In these interrogations, Miller didn't say that he killed anyone, he certainly didn't say he killed Gail Thompson, but eventually he told investigators that he had once had sex with Gail Thompson in his car. Mhm. Um I'll hasten to add that no one had had sex with Gail Thompson just before she was killed. Um And does that
0: go for all of them? There is no proof of sexual contact?
2: I don't know that for a fact, but there was no specific mention of uh the, the only time they go into whether someone had had sex with these women is to say that uh, it didn't appear anyone had had sex with Gail Thompson, uh, which I guess they're just saying in relation to this guy in relation to Miller. He didn't, you know, he, he did say that he had once had sex with her in his car, which is an interesting and off topic uh, admission.
0: And a surprising one for someone who considers themselves so holy and so above sex workers. Well, so often, It's like Gary, he's a hypocrite. So often, Gary, we find that. It's an interesting thing. Passing judgment on those that you are taking advantage of for your own sins.
2: Miller was given a polygraph late in 1971 that proved inconclusive due to what investigators called his disorganized mind. Hmm. Um, I will hasten to point out once again that polygraphs are not admissible in court and they are bunk science. But And
0: who doesn't have a disorganized mind?
2: But it's, it's notable that he was too crazy to, like, take the polygraph. Hmm. Uh, he was crazy enough, in fact, that police uh, recommended him for a psyche vow, which revealed latent schizophrenia. And Miller was committed on February 17th of 1972.
0: How old was he at this point?
2: Um, he would have been... Around. 44.
1: Because
0: mm. I'm pretty sure schizophrenia shows itself in your teens and 20s. So he oh, must, I'm sure he had... He, he must have been living with this for a very long
2: time. Yes. He seems like a paranoid delusions kind of a guy. Yeah. Well, he was interred at Fairfield Hills in Newtown... Oh. For a little bit about the conditions at Fairfield Hills while well, it was uh, in operation and about the possible hauntings ever since uh, You can check out our, I think, very first episode uh, First or second, yeah, Connecticut Legends and Lore That's our, our first two
0: episodes, our two-parter, we talk about Fairfield Hills Asylum
2: uh, While well, interred there, in Newtown, Connecticut, Miller exhibited consistent hypochondria and clinical delusions In the words of his doctors, Um, And then one day, he suddenly told his shrink that he wanted to speak to investigators in that murder case again. Mm -hmm. And on February 29th, he confessed via a note to investigators to killing seven women. Mm. The investigators said he um, described killing Thompson in detail, or in his written confession, he described killing Thompson in detail and gave um, rough locations of at least three of the other body dumps. On March 1st, investigators brought him out to the crime scene and had him recreate several aspects of the crime. This was over there, this was over there kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And finally, on March 18th, Benjamin Miller was released from Fairfield Hills Hospital and was immediately arrested uh, in front of the hospital. Uh, now, you have a, uh, a look on your face, Carrie. What are you, what are you thinking? I see wheels turning. uh. uh.
0: Was there ever any sense, did anyone ever say, oh, the voice of James Miller on the phone sounded like this guy?
2: No, no, I've never heard that suggest.
0: Because it just seems like he has a particular fixation with, um, Thompson was her name? Sissy? Which one? I'm sorry. Which one was Thompson?
2: Gail Thompson.
0: Was she the one that was strangled with her handkerchief?
2: Yes, she was. Okay, And left in the abandoned house.
0: Interesting. Yeah, he definitely seems to have a particular fixation with Thompson. And I find it very interesting that there are two aspects of her body disposal that are different, Yes, which is the handkerchief and where um, she was in a covered space rather than just thrown at the side of the road.
2: I think it's you're raising a great point that I think we should talk about. Uh, and this is later. the
0: only one we know that he's admitted to having sex with as well. Yes, very interesting
2: it is um yeah yeah you raise a great point that it is the only one that really differs from these other um victims in the meantime it was time for benjamin miller to go to trial and it may surprise you to learn this trial was something of a circus
0: (laughs) no it doesn't surprise me
2: um after his arraignment miller had almost immediately recanted his confession of course Mm mm-hmm And his father was called as a witness at his trial to say that Ben had called him right after he confessed, telling him he was insane and that the confession had been coerced out of him by police. Mm -hmm. Uh, Benjamin said police threatened to beat him, expose his infidelity, and make sure he lost his job. He was married? Oh, married with a 12-year-old daughter, yeah.
0: Oh, when you said he had like no friends, I thought he was just completely solitary.
2: No, he actually was, you know, he was married with a 12-year-old. Oh, God. Which is very interesting, and I don't know how that worked. Um, Yikes. He's, from this point on, not going to have his life under his own control, so... Um, I, but I don't think he was probably providing a lot to the stability of that the household uh, to, to begin with. I I don't know. I don't know Benjamin Miller. I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Oh. Well, it's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um. Ben said that the police threatened to beat him. Uh, Yeah, again. So they threatened to beat him, expose his infidelity. But the idea of confessing to a murderer so the police don't tell your wife you admitted to having sex with a prostitute is interesting. (laughs) It's a disorganized mind. It is. And they told him he was going to lose his job and custody of his child if he didn't sign this um, confession. Okay. Eventually, um, as this trial dragged on, Miller's attorneys filed a motion to have him evaluated for mental fitness um, due to his obvious personality disorders and his active hallucinations. And in February 1973, the prosecutors agreed to drop two of the murder charges, and Miller was found not guilty of the other three by way of insanity.
0: That's actually not very common, too.
2: No, it's almost never a successful defense. This guy was clearly crazy but he also probably didn't um, kill three women, but but we can talk about it. Um, he was sentenced to 25 years in a psychiatric facility. And honestly, Benjamin Miller probably needed to be in someone's care whether he killed any of these women or not. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't sound like he was doing himself any favors at any point. Mm-hmm. Although he somehow managed to be married and procreate, which is...
0: And had a job. I mean, a job that
2: people thought he was weird at, but still had a job. Yeah. Hmm. After the trial, Miller's family hired better attorneys to come back and look at the whole case, and they found that prosecutors had failed to disclose another possible suspect to Miller's defense. Oh, that's not good. It's not good at all, and it was, um... We'll talk about this other suspect. It was compelling enough that the appeals court granted Miller a new trial in 1988.
0: Well, I think you should have just gotten that on the basis of non-disclosure.
2: And the new trial... Um,
0: As we know from my cousin Vinny, it's legally required. It's Yeah, Marissa Tomei could have done him a lot of favors. <laughs> I wish... Uh, I, I think you wish that she'd do
2: you a lot of favors. Hey. I mean, hey. <laughs> hey. This time around, the jury decided uh, decided that the coercive interrogation tactics that had been used to get the confession made it invalid, and there was enough doubt around the case to th- throw the whole verdict out. Um, partly because of the potency of all this new shit that had come to light, man, and Miller was officially acquitted and released from uh, well, released from the psychiatric facility he was in. He uh, ultimately was transferred to a homeless shelter for the mentally ill. Because he was uh, ruled not to be able to you know kind of have control of his own life and um, yeah so he he passed in 2010 at age 80 but uh, but that was that was old Benjamin Miller so who's this other guy his name was Robert Lupinacci oh and uh, why did he come to the attention of police well let's see First things first, uh, a former Stanford cop named Paul Romanos uh, told the Stanford Advocate newspaper that he knew Robert Lupinacci from the German American Club. Now, by the way, the German American Club in Stanford is in Grey Rocks Place. That's the name of the neighborhood it's in. Mm-hmm. And that is the same area where Alma Henry disappeared. So just an interesting connection
0: mm-hmm.
2: to show you where we are in space here.
0: And how far is that from... The particular exits couple of miles bodies were buried at so would it be the nearest exit
2: i hmm. that's a good question i think there probably is a closer one
1: mm-hmm. okay
2: so romanos said that one day lupinacci had been grilling him at the club about the timing and location of police stakeouts near the parkway oh so they did stake it out um yes but not constantly right so he was grilling him about... <laughs> they, didn't find, they didn't see anyone, so clearly not very constantly. So Lupinacci was grilling him about the locations and timing of these stakeouts, and also seemed to reveal details about the murders that weren't public.
0: Any particular ones?
2: Yeah, it was something along the lines of, Yeah, you know, not all those women were strangled with bras. <laughs> Why would you Why would you say that? that? You know, I hear it from what I hear. Not all those. It, it, it's almost like um, he's trying to show that he's like, hey, I'm in on the investigation, too. You can tell me about where the stakeouts are.
0: A really uh, a real Ed Kemper type. That's pretty yes, much exactly Ed what like Ed a,
2: Kemper would do. Like a police nerd. Yeah. Um, so Romanos found this suspicious, so he referred yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So he referred it to this guy, George Mayer, who was in charge of the case. A detective. Um, mayor actually would later be the chief of stanford police he's retired now he's dead now actually but um retired forever sorry (laughs) let's not come on a little respect i'm sorry at the time mayor said um we've already got a suspect this whole benjamin miller things looking pretty airtight. leave us alone Uh, And so nothing was done about Lupinacci. At this time, uh, he was then arrested in July 1972. So while they were really putting the final screws on the Benjamin Miller case.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: After a state trooper caught Lupinacci trying to strangle a black sex worker in her car near Route 15.
0: What was he strangling her with?
2: Uh, It doesn't say anywhere. So I have to assume it was manual or not with her own bra or that would definitely be in the Mm -hmm. records. Um, however, there were a few other suspicious details, w- w- at least such that certainly this should have been reported to Miller's uh, defense. Yeah. You're entitled. Lupinacci's trunk was found to have hairs in it, and lab tests showed that they had come from a black woman's arms or legs. Huh. Okay. Uh, Lupinacci was... Uh, listen... In, in one of the court documents, it said Lupinacci was known to sell pornographic decks of cards. And one of these decks was also in his trunk with a Queen of Hearts missing. Uh, what is he, the Joker? Well, weirdly enough, a similar Queen of Hearts. I don't know if it was from... I, I, it only ever says a similar Queen of Hearts. So I, I assume that has to mean a pornographic one. Uh-huh. Uh, was found near Gail Thompson's body. What? Yes. And these are cards that Lupinacci sold, but also like in his trunk was a was a missing. They couldn't verify
0: that it was from the same deck.
2: I just haven't seen an article that says that explicitly. Right? They always say a similar card was found. (sighs) Okay. Even the uh uh like the court papers from when they released um Miller, just say like you know a similar card was found. Um. So let's talk about some other stuff about Lupinacci. Uh, What did police find out about him as they investigated? Um, Investigators found Lupinacci was known to patronize black prostitutes and quote, referred to blacks disparagingly. So he was kind of a known racist, but also um, preferred black sex workers.
0: It's one of those self-hating things.
2: Um Lupinacci had been working in the motel where Gail Thompson was staying in 1971. Mm -hmm. And Thompson was last seen getting into a car that matched the color and make of Lupinacci's car.
0: It's all circumstantial unless they could get some sort of definitive evidence about the deck of cards. I mean, they couldn't use DNA or anything back in the day. Carrie,
2: if I may, I'm not done. Okay. In 1967, he had been seen hanging around bars in Port Chester, bars that Sissy Rush was known to frequent. Mm-hmm. And in 1968, Hotel Hazleton employees said they had seen Lupinacci in their bar, and that was a place that Con slash was staying at the time. In 1966, a few years before, Lupinacci had been accused of rape and prosecuted, but um, the charges were ultimately dropped when the victim didn't want to testify
0: unfortunately that does happen
2: now lupinacci was never charged with the bra murders but he did go to prison for that assault i'm not sure for how long but after prison he worked as an electrician um in stamford he fostered shelties with his wife um and enjoyed visiting nursing homes with his therapy dog rocket and he died in 2013 at age 79. All that information I just gave you was from his uh, obit, which doesn't mention the bra murders <laughs> at all. Well...
0: Uh, I'm glad he liked dogs.
2: He <laughs> <laughs> so did Hitler. That doesn't say anything. Everybody yeah, well, likes yeah, dogs.
0: Yeah. Um uh, You know, aside from the confession, which again, Miller was clearly unwell. So you can only ever take that with a grain of salt. And we've seen that time and time again
2: in these stories. It's so, it's the the Henry, not Henry, the Benjamin Miller thing is so similar.
0: But it's so. To uh,
2: George Kelly, the reverend from the Velisca axe murder case. That's why I kept saying Henry Miller. That's the name of the guy who probably did kill that family. (laughs) Uh, Listen to our axe murder series for more on that.
0: Well, my point is that aside from the confession, there's such little real evidence, um, circumstantial or not, tying Miller to these people.
2: Well, I never see a lot of, and look, I haven't seen police reports, right? So uh, I can't, uh, this could be a, a failure of reporting and not a failure of policing, but I don't see a lot of mention of like physical evidence that was gleaned from these crime scenes.
0: Right, but even even in Lupinacci's case, it seems like there's at least more circumstantial evidence. But again, I don't. Oh, th- I don't want to. I don't want
2: to. <laughs> then for this guy Miller.
0: Then for Miller, yes. Aside from the confession, which again he was clearly unwell.
2: Right. Everything in Lupinacci's uh, column here is circumstantial. Completely. But there's more of it. And it's it, a lot of it is pretty spooky. Yeah. You know, it's at it's least... It's a weird coincidence. We can at least say it's spooky.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the the deck of cards thing is weird.
2: But... So, so to me, it's it's like the West Memphis 3 thing, where it's like, if there's... I'm not saying this other guy did it, but if there's a better case for this guy than the guy you've got in prison, then obviously you shouldn't have put the guy in prison. Yeah. And I know Miller never went to prison, per se, and et cetera, et cetera, but... Um the fact that this Lupinacci guy was never charged or anything.
0: Yeah. And listen, maybe he didn't do it. Maybe, maybe it's just a, another didn't. completely circumstantial thing and he obviously had a long life um and and died fairly recently. I don't want to a-, a long and- I don't want to make any accusations is what I what, what I'm saying. Yes. But just based on these two cases side by side like it really makes clear that Miller, yes, did need mental care, but could not have been trusted to confess on his own behalf about these things. Um, And there was just no other evidence, but he was still sentenced to um, psychiatric care or whatever, which he obviously needed, but like in, in a capacity of being guilty, right? Right. So... It's just scary. It makes you think about how easy it is to actually, I mean, maybe a little less now because there's DNA and all that, but how easy it is to get put away for a crime you didn't commit. I mean, again, he could have done it, but there's less pointing to that fact.
2: It's also, just to raise another fascinating wrinkle, uh, Carrie, because you did mention Miller admitted to knowing Gail Thompson and then admitted to ha- having had sex with Gail Thompson and then admitted to having murdered Gail Thompson um long before he did the or before he did the whole signed confession bit um and, you know the day before not months before or anything but and the and that Gail Thompson murder is the one that bears the most differences from these other crimes it wasn't maybe on the maybe he s-
0: just committed that one
2: now, that was also less than a mile away. Right. And all of the other ones, you know, like the other ones, she she had been strangled, not with her bra. But um, Pazda, by the way, was too badly decomposed to perform um, like a really good autopsy. But they thought she probably was strangled also.
0: This case reminds me a lot of the ongoing... Um, Long Island serial killer investigation, also known to me more personally as the Gilgo Beach Killer. Uh, just a little bit of background. I was going to school about 20 minutes away from Jones Beach, where all the bodies were found back around 2011, 2012-ish. Um, and there was the first kind of mutterings that there might be a serial killer dumping bodies along the Jones Beach, you know, parkway area. And it's a very similar situation. There's no lights out there. It's very dark at night. And as time has gone on, it's gotten more and more likely um, that these bodies are not all from one person, but rather... It's a situation where it's just such a quote-unquote good place to dump bodies.
2: Right. That this is just a series of mob hits and crimes of passion. I mean, there probably
0: is at least one because a lot of them are sex workers, the bodies that they've found, which again, reminds me of this case. Um, But yeah, there are other cases of bodies being found that don't quite fit into the profile. And it could be a case of, well, you know, there can be two crazy people at the same time in the same place. It happens.
2: Yeah, uh, we talked about that with the with the man man from the train yeah. thing as well. The axe murder thing. Yeah,
0: but we'll definitely talk about the Long Island serial killer down the line. That's going to be a multi-parter. It's very personal to me because of everything that was going on. Of course. Um, you know, with everything being found while I was literally driving by, seeing the caution tape up. Um, but yeah, it really reminds me of this. And yeah, it could be two crazy people in the same place. Who
2: knows? Um, yeah, but I thought this—the Stanford Bra Murders—were a pretty good case study for how easily justice can be miscarried in multiple ways. Yeah, in, yeah. Uh, there was, you know, there's pressure on police to prosecute somebody,
0: mm-hmm, but then they're not exactly doing the most diligent work. I think we can
2: agree. But either way, once the once someone's been arrested and the murders stop happening, the problem for the police kind of goes away, and it's you know. They've, their their problem has been solved once the murders uh, stop. By the way, the murders did stop.
0: Well, that's the, that's the thing is, you know, most often murder a serial killer stops because they are either caught or they die, or maybe they move and they're killing somewhere else. But Miller was obviously put away, but Lupinacci just kept on living in Stamford. Yep,
2: just raising dogs.
0: And usually, serial killers don't just stop. I mean, they I was they thinking can about that too, yeah. the Golden State killer who was just caught, he was able to apparently, unless there's other information that hasn't come to light, he was a, a, able to just stop when they when police got too close to catching him. And maybe it's the same thing here. maybe it was it was a little too close for comfort, and you just stop or. Maybe the person got sent away somehow, or it's someone completely different.
2: Well, when, when this guy was reached by the Stanford advocate, he was like, I've never heard of that guy or whatever he did, but uh, unrelated to my thing. Who? Lupinacci.
0: Unrelated to my thing?
2: He, I've never heard of this Benjamin Miller. I, I don't know about uh, the, this thing with, the, with the, um, the sex workers. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I, I had some trouble back then, but it was unrelated to whatever you're talking about. That yeah, was kind of his attitude. Well, that's weird that he would pretend not to be aware of the <laughs> like thing he's that people definitely were definitely aware. He has to have been, yeah. Huh.
0: That's I mean again, he's he lived a long life after that. Maybe he didn't want it to be associated with him at all, but
2: I would weird. not want it to be associated with me. So it's I weird. get that. Huh. Um, yeah. Weird case. But yeah, so police are likely to seize on the person who kind of fits the facts of the case is weird. Yes. Um, I don't know how much the racial component, um, plays in here. I think if these were, uh, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but if these were white sex workers, I think it probably would have been, uh, ignored a similar length of time. You don't think so? I don't think so. Okay.
0: Not a similar length of time.
2: And then we see in the Velisca case, which was like a white family being murdered. We do see that very similar miscarriages of justice can happen where the police just need to find someone to pin this thing on
0: but that was much earlier At, by sixty-seven, seventy-one, they should have known better and they had more ways of trying to to pin down suspects than in what, what 1910 police? 11 yeah
2: 1911 yeah yeah no that's a good point <sighs> But in both of those cases, we do see how easily the mentally ill and the otherwise marginalized can be kind of just champed up in the wheels of justice.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, you know, which police are just people who are doing um, their jobs. And people can fail just like other people.
0: And more than anything, the system can fail because a system's just a system at the end of the day. It's crying Saucers. As promised, here's our wrap-up for the Congressional Hearing on UFOs held on May 17th at the Pentagon.
2: Oh, I've been keeping myself pure of spoilers, Carrie. Lay it on me. <laughs>
0: The hearing was the first in more than fifty years to concentrate on military reports of unexplained aerial phenomena, aka UFOs, and also give D C lawmakers a chance to question Pentagon officials for more
2: information. From I, I like how they made the switch to UAP. They're like <laughs> they're like UFOs goofy. These are unexplained. They're not flying objects. They're
0: Aerial phenomenon.
2: Well, that's why I said
0: A.K. UFOs. I'm, I'm not going to change what I'm calling them. They're UFOs. Get over it. From the New York Times, quote, The Pentagon officials testified under oath that the government had not collected materials from any alien landing on Earth, pushing back on at least one favored conspiracy theory. The highlight of the hearing was a split second image shot last year through the window of an FA 18 fighter jet. Of a spherical object in the distance. The pilot also reported observing an object. It remains unexplained and is an example of how difficult it is to determine what a short video clip may
2: show. Is this the one I keep trying to tell myself is a bird?
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure. I will say this video footage had previously been classified, so I don't know if it's completely new or not. The first part of the session was open while the second was closed for a specific reason. According to Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence Scott W. Bray, quote, We do not want potential adversaries to know exactly what we're able to see or understand, or how we come to the conclusion. Therefore, disclosures must be carefully considered on a case-by-case basis. Much of the session focused on the way these images are captured on photo and video, and the difficulties of identifying them through the footage.
2: Of course, it's true that there's, you know, just mundane security reasons you can't share everything. Um, But come on, (laughs) you can say that all you want, but when half the hearing is closed, we're all going to just go like, but because aliens though, right? (laughs)
0: Well, the Pentagon will be creating a new task force to investigate reports and if this is going to be a real-life X-Files, I beg of you, Pentagon, please consider this entire podcast as my resume and cover letter. I want the job. Make
2: her your molder.
0: Yeah. Please. Representative Andre Carson of Indiana, chairman of the House Intelligence Subcommittee, stated at the open session, quote, You need to show us, Congress and the American public, whose imagination you have captured. You are willing to follow the facts where they lead. We fear that sometimes DOD is focused more on emphasizing what it can explain, not investigating what it can't. I am looking for you to assure us today that all conclusions are on the table. That seems to mean aliens. So more information to come, I'm sure, and we'll share it when it does.
2: Aliens are on the table sometimes. You've seen them operating on the little Roswell one, right?
0: (laughs) The little Roswell one. Aww. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
2: We will be forever grateful. And special thanks to our beloved top tier patrons already joining us over there. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atcherson. Thank you guys. Uh, we love you very much. I don't want that to get lost in uh, me just repeating uh, your your names every week. I hope I hope I say it with the with the feeling that you deserve. Um, you know what? Next week I'm going to give them all a little kiss after each name. Oh,
0: don't do that.
2: You know, just a quick little smooch.
0: See you next Thursday.
2: Show created by Sean and Carrie <laughs> McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb.
0: Ain't it scary? Has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> ohiomysteries.com